well, I have to talk to you. I think we've, we've made a lot of progress already in thinking about following Jesus, the theme of this year's camp. Those two words, follow me, were given to us by Josh Petrus on our first evening together as he reminded us that the cost of following Jesus is extreme, that Jesus doesn't allow you to be a a half-hearted follower, but he demands everything from you as his disciple, that there is no part way with Jesus Christ, that there is no half commitment with him. And Josh so excellently helped us see the importance and exclusivity of following Jesus, that he demands from us total allegiance. This morning, I tried to show you what I believe is one of the greatest obstacles to following Jesus, and it's thinking about this world wrong. And rather than being intoxicated by and allured by the world and the people in this world who are godless and who do not honor Christ, I wanted to help you see what the psalmist saw, that the end that is before you is what matters. It's not how next year will go, but it's what your destiny will be a hundred years from now when we're all dead and gone. We will stand before a holy God And his question will be, who did we follow? And if you're allured and if you're drawn into the world and all the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life, if you look at the wicked and you envy them, then there's a good chance that you'll follow after them. And so we saw the antidote to that this morning as the psalmist remind us to consider the end of the wicked and we are face to face with the judgment of God. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about your greatest need. You see, Jesus made several clear demands to his followers, all wrapped around the importance of being saved from your sin. And I want to talk to you about what it means to be born again. I would like you to open in your Bible to John chapter 3. It's the first message that I ever gave when we started this camp in this very room uh, some seven or eight years ago, and since you weren't in high school then, I thought it would be helpful to remind you of why this camp is called Regen, short for a theological word that isn't on the tongue of most high schoolers. This word regeneration is what we built this camp around at its outset because we wanted that to be at the forefront of everything we do. Regeneration, as we'll see tonight, is not something you can accomplish. It's only something God can do. And it's the most important aspect of following Jesus. Because if you follow him apart from the divine act of regeneration upon your soul, that following is invalid. That following is ineffective, and it will not last. It will end in destruction. You see, true followers of Jesus, true disciples, true Christians begin their spiritual journey experiencing something God calls regeneration or the new birth. About 10 years ago, there was a really sad story that made national news. It was the death of a girl who was only 10 years old. 
Her name was Candace Newmaker. Her sad story began when she was just five years old. She was plucked away from her birth parents by social services from a family in the backwaters of North Carolina. She was adopted shortly thereafter after bouncing around somewhat in foster care by a well-to-do nurse who was a single lady looking for a child to love. But after a few years with Candace, her adoptive mom found her behavioral problems too much for her to handle. And so she tried everything, different parenting techniques, nutritionists, doctors, counselors, and drugs, but nothing seemed to be working. And so in her desperation, she found out that there was a group of therapists in Colorado, and she paid them $7,000 for a controversial psychotherapy treatment called rebirthing. Rebirthing is some therapy that the, this group of therapists had come up with to treat something they diagnosed called attachment disorder. A phenomenon, they say, where adopted children resist forming loving relationships with their new parents. And in this controversial treatment, this child, now 10 years old, was put into a room with six or seven therapists and her adoptive mom looking on. And they surrounded her with these big cushions and bean bags and pressed down on this little girl, telling her to push through to get to her mom, trying to simulate uh, something about birth. And it was in this tragic session where Candace died from asphyxiation after undergoing this therapy. You see, they wrapped her in blankets and surrounded her by pillows to simulate a womb as therapists pushed against her for over an hour. Two therapists were charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death. Both received 16-year prison sentences, and rebirthing therapy is now banned in several states as it's been described as abusive and pseudoscientific. Senator Mark Hillman sponsored a bill to ban it nationally, and he said no one can read about this and not be horrified. Listen to the transcripts of this therapy session, and it's awful to hear them telling her to try harder to bond, to push through, to emerge. And she keeps saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe until she doesn't say anything anymore. One of the first law enforcement agents to ever meet her when she was just a little girl said she didn't have a chance from the moment she was born until the moment she died. It's a tragic story, and it's heart-wrenching. Rebirthing therapy is obviously stupid. It's a gross evil, and it's an extreme example of the lengths that people will go to who don't know God to try to change someone, to try to make a situation right. I mean, there's a lot lesser examples we could look at. There's so many different versions of a reset button that people try to change their life. I'm sure you have friends who have 
had makeovers or who have tried a new diet or have tried another attempt to change bad habits. The longer you live in this world, the more you'll encounter the different fads and the different programs and the different initiatives and television shows and reality experiences that people will enter into in order to change their lives, to get a fresh start, a new lease on life, to turn over a new leaf, to have another try, to have some kind of makeover of their life. But what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3 is that the greatest need of every human being is not a makeover. It's not another try. It's not a therapy of, of rebirthing. It is new birth that he requires from everyone who will answer the call to follow him. The greatest need of every human being is regeneration. Regeneration is a big fancy word, isn't it? I want you to understand what it means, and I think John chapter 3 will help you, but at the outset, understand it's this. Regeneration is a secret act of God. In other words, there are not fireworks that accompany this act. There is not some kind of snap, crackle, and pop that show you that regeneration has taken place instantaneously in a person. And it's not something that you can sign up for. If I passed a card around and said, who wants to be regenerated? You could sign up and check a box and it's done. It doesn't work like that. It is solely a secret act of God in which he gives new spiritual life to us. The synonym for regeneration is the new birth. It is to be born again. And so let's look at John chapter 3 together and listen in as the author of the new birth. Jesus himself has a conversation with one of the greatest religious teachers of his day, a man by the name of Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, a section of scripture that J.C. Ryle said is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Let me read it to you. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You cannot hear its sound. You can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. 
You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? You know, this point in the story that John wrote down in his gospel, a lot has already happened. Massive crowds had begun to follow Jesus. And he finds himself in Jerusalem, the main city and the site of the temple, along with 2.5 million other Jews. Jesus is already a controversial figure because in the last chapter, just days before, he had cleansed the temple. It was that story you all remember when Jesus made a whip and walked into God's house and started to flip stuff over. It was a very noticeable event in the temple. The temple was a place where people went to church. It wasn't an MMA match. But Jesus was displeased with what was happening in the temple. People were being cheated by the religious leaders, and so Jesus decided to show them how God felt about that, fulfilling the scripture that said, zeal for his father's house will consume him. So he braided a whip and knocked stuff around. Jesus, you know him, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, cleansed the temple. There was already a raising uh, concern about Jesus' challenging of the religious system. Pharisees were raising their eyebrows, and there was a groundswell of popularity around Jesus. People were showing interest in the signs and miracles he performed at a large wedding. A very public miracle took place at the request of Jesus' own mother. Uh, the family ran out of wine at this party. It was a cultural disaster. It was an embarrassment to the family, to the bride and groom on this most important day of their marriage and Jesus fixed everything in a moment by his miraculous provision. The crowd is following Jesus and it's in this context that this conversation we hear between God and Nicodemus, a conversation that God recorded in Scripture for all of us to hear tonight and to be accountable for and to be reminded that the greatest need of every young man and young woman and every child and every adult and every person, all of mankind, every single person at this camp tonight, the greatest need that you have is to be born again. Though this text is a dialogue, a conversation between two people, its message is very simple. It's summarized in verse 7. You must be born again. And that's what I want you to understand tonight. And we'll look at it just simply in two parts. First off, verses 1 through 5, the necessity of the new birth the necessity of the new birth. Can I show you how necessary it is that, you're, that you would be born again? It's necessary, first of all, because the omniscience of Jesus demands it. I mean, let me explain to you what this passage means and why I say the necessity of the new birth is because of the omniscience of Jesus. Verse 1 starts with a word, now. 
And that connects it to what's happening before. And I gave you a little overview reminding you of what happened at that wedding at Cana and that Jesus had cleansed the temple. But you see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, had already turned on him. They were trying to trap him and trick him, and they were upset with him. He messed up their money-making scheme that they had going in God's house, and they demanded him to give them a sign, do a miracle, do another one of those wine at Cana kind of things, heal a withered arm or raise someone from the dead. Show us that you have the authority to mess up what we're doing because we work for God, the religious leaders said to God's son that he sent. And Jesus told them, tear down the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. A mysterious statement to them because Solomon's temple had taken generations to build. But Jesus was talking about his own body and his coming death and resurrection. And the disciples wouldn't even understand that until they saw Jesus raised from the grave. But something else happens in those verses right before chapter 3. Look at verse 23. I think you'll find this interesting. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem with two and a half million other Jews at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. You understand that John says at the end of this gospel that if all the work that Jesus did and all the words that Jesus spoke and all the miracles that Jesus performed were to be written down, they would fill a volume of books, a whole library that the world could not contain. Now, obviously, John is being hyperbolic. He didn't measure how big the earth is and how many libraries you could fit on planet earth and how many books would fit in those libraries. He's saying simply in a literary way that what John has written down is only a sliver, only a portion. Every story you ever heard in Sunday school represents a hundred other stories, a hundred other encounters with the Messiah, a thousand other healings, the historical Historians in Jesus' day that would follow the early Christian movement would say that disease was nearly eradicated from the area of Palestine because of Jesus' miracle working. So much teaching, so much wisdom, so much mercy, so much compassion. God was walking on earth in human flesh. And as this began to be realized among the people of Israel, they flocked to him by the thousands. You always think of Jesus' disciples being those 12 fisher dudes who walked around with him and one of them looking very nefarious with his pointy mustache because evil people always have pointy mustache and saying, I'm Judas, and you think of those 12 guys almost like cartoon characters. You have to understand the Jesus movement was massive. People followed him by thousands. He was constantly harassed by crowds of people, pressing against him, asking of him, listening to him, demanding from him, trying to manipulate him. Crowds and crowds, hundreds and hundreds of people called themselves his disciples, 
his followers. They wanted in on the show. There was food being created from one boy's lunch. There was arms being reconstructed before their very eyes. A blind beggar who they had seen their entire lives on the streets without sight, covered in poverty and filth, begging for daily sustenance, was suddenly completely made well and was praising God and walking through the streets, his sight restored. People whose legs had never worked in their life were given new legs and able to leap and dance and thank God for his provision. Jesus was making a scene and the religious leaders were trying to make money here. They didn't want this to happen anymore. And then verse 24 says, after saying all these signs were happening and, and people were believing in his name, it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. And he did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. You know, there was signs There was miracles, and verse 23 says, lots of people believed in his name. But verse 24 says, Jesus would not entrust, it's the same word as believe, Jesus would not believe in them. Do you get that? Students, do you understand what I'm saying? Thousands of people believed in Jesus during his earthly ministry. But Jesus did not believe in them. What does that mean? That means that Jesus can't be fooled by flattery. It means that Jesus then and now understands that there are true and false disciples. That there are followers who are genuine and real, and then there are followers who are fake. Ooh, it's just a show. It's a total sham. Do you realize that if that was true in John chapter 2, it's certainly true today. There are people who claim to be Christians who are in fact not. There are people who claim to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, who go and fill your churches and raise their hands and sing and make big, bold promises, but who do not know God. They say they believe in him, but God does not, on his part, believe in them. Why? Because Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. And everything includes the recesses, the innermost parts of your heart. He knows why you're here tonight. He knows why you got on that bus. He knows why you come to church every Sunday or why you don't. He knows what your parents may never find out. He knows every secret that would horrify you if it were exposed tonight. 
Christ will not be fooled by flattery. He has profound insight, omniscience on every human heart. And that's why that play of words in verse 23 and 24, they trusted in him. He did not in turn trust in them or entrust himself to them. Why? Because it says, verse 24, he knew all men. He doesn't need anyone's testimony about man. He knows what's in every single man. It's because miracles, as we heard from the story of Lazarus this morning, don't produce faith. They may provoke faith, but many can follow after Jesus and many can love to see signs and wonders and many can love the benefits that come with being a part of the church, but many can say that they're following after Jesus but not really belong to him because there is such a thing as spurious or fake faith. There are illegitimate seekers. There are those who long for the benefits of, the Christi- of Christianity, but who are unwilling to pay the cost. And the praise of this whole thing is that God has x-ray vision to your heart. He knows who you are. Did you know 70% of Americans... Thank you. I know that was really. Well, you guys don't know this, but I'm a chubby ninja. That's how I'm able to get the microphone back on without anyone noticing. What was I saying? Thank you. You're paying attention. 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 <laughs> Sermon seems to be wheels falling off, as it were. Let's, let's regather. Statistics, everyone. 70% statistics. 70% of Americans claim to be born again. Seven out of 10 kids in your high school, seven out of 10 people that live on your street claim to be Christians. Jesus says in Matthew seven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? And in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, these are the most frightening words, I think, in all of Jesus' ministry. When he looks at these people who think that they represent him, that they know him, that they follow him, and he says, I am never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I mean, the same comfort or the same fear that we have of hearing those words accompanies Uh, is accompanied by the same comfort we have from hearing the words of Jesus in John 10 when he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for my sheep. You see, if Jesus Christ wasn't able to identify those who truly belong to him, he wouldn't be able to identify those who don't. And so we praise him because his omniscience testifies to the fact that every single one of you young people need to be born again. 
Jesus will entrust himself to those who truly trust him. And the omniscience of Christ testifies to the fact that each person must reject the deceitfulness of your own heart and recognize your spiritual poverty and believe on him. I'll tell you about a young man that I worked with when I was a youth pastor in the old days, the Paleolithic era. Brontosauruses and stuff. His name was... We'll call him Jeff. His name was Jeff. And Jeff was a con artist, man. Jeff was a cheater in school. I mean, a prolific cheater, an obvious cheater. Everybody knew it. But his parents? Not their precious Jeff. He had them fooled. I mean, Hornswoggled kind of fooled. Some of the kids from Texas taught me that word. I remember talking to his parents about some concerns I had about Jeff's soul. And they were so offended that I would think that Jeff needed to be born again. How dare you question the confession that we heard when he was six years old at our bedside? He prayed out loud to Jesus. That same summer, Jeff got his girlfriend pregnant. I don't know where Jeff's at today, but I know that if you can fool your parents and you could fool your teachers and you could fool your youth workers, I'm positive you can't fool God. He knows you with perfect omniscience. And that's why the new birth is necessary. Why else is it necessary? Well, it's necessary because the condition of man demands it. It's required because of your condition. Look at the first verse of chapter 1. It says, there was a man of Pharisees. He's playing on that word man. Verse 24, he knew all men. He doesn't need man's testimony about man, for he knew it was in a man. Now there was a man. Did you hear the word man a whole bunch of times? Man, 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 man. What's he saying? There was a man of the Pharisees. We're introduced to a man here who came to Jesus. And I submit to you that this is like an exhibit A in the courtroom. He's saying generally Jesus knows about all men. But let me give you a specific example of one man. In fact, it's an ideal example of the necessity of being born again because the condition of man requires it. Look at the one who came to Jesus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. The man came to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, this man was a ruler like the rich young ruler we heard about on, on Monday night. He was part of the Pharisees, those guys who got in trouble with Jesus for messing with his father's house. They were called the separated ones. 6,000 of them that ruled over the religious life of Israel. They were arch conservatives at the time of Jesus. They were the most orthodox party among the Jews. And this guy, Nicodemus, had a Greek name. So he was probably that background, sophisticated, educated. The Greeks were hip and in vogue in the Roman world. 
And he was a ruler of the Jews. This is an even more elite group, a ruling class, the Sanhedrin it was called. It was an extremely influential council, like a religious supreme court over Israel. Seventy men sat on this council, and only seventy. It was the highest legislative body in, in Judaism. And this is the man who comes to Jesus at night. And lots of Bible scholars have made much of him coming at night. Was the night representative of darkness? Was he coming because he didn't want to be seen? I think it was night because the sun was down. Verse 10 shows us that he held a position of some distinguishment. He was a teacher, a rabbi of some fame and notoriety. Otherwise, why would Jesus say, you are the teacher of Israel? That's a big title. He would have been an expert in the law, a specialist in spiritual instruction, a shepherd and a guide for the souls of the Jewish people. Nicodemus was someone who was far more moral and meticulous than any person in this room. This was a very religious man. He knew his Bible. He was a theologian with a famous reputation. There's no way he's on the Sanhedrin without those kind of credentials. He was involved in religious life and society. He was cultured. He was an upper-class Jew. Tradition, extra-biblically, tells us that he was one of the three richest Jews in Jerusalem. From a human perspective, Nicodemus was the finest kind of man. Nicodemus was religious. He was spiritual. He was conservative. He was educated. He was involved. He was influential, Bible-believing, orthodox, virtuous, honored, respected, scholarly, fastidious, lawful, and lost. He was lost. Do you see that you can be all of these things? You could be a very religious person, and you could not know God Nicodemus had lots of religion, but he had no spiritual life. He saw the supernatural work of God in Jesus and acknowledged that, but he had not experienced the supernatural work of God in his own soul. What does this tell us about the necessity of the new birth? Well, if this fine man must be born again, then Jesus' words are certainly true of every single one of us. The need of man is not more religion or more works or more effort. The need of man is rescue, divine resuscitation. Do you understand what it's like to be lost? I mean, have you ever been really, really lost? Just on a practical level, I've been lost before. People don't get lost anymore because they have Siri, and you're like, Siri, get me out of here. And Siri's like, sure, boss. That was Siri doing her hair like that. I have Australian Siri. She drives my wife crazy because she's like, good day, Austin. I'll get you not lost. It's a really, really bad Australian Siri impersonation. But before I had Siri, you know, there was a time when cell phones were not. It's me being a caveman. And I remember being hopelessly lost in a city called Manila in the Philippines. I've been lost in countries all over the world, but I don't know if I've ever been so nervous as when I was lost in a squalor kind of squatter village in the Philippines. Every corner looked the same. 
Every time I took another left, there was this same rabid dog that looked at me like, as soon as you fall over and die, I'm going to eat you. Everybody saying, Mabuhai, Mabuhai, Mabuhai. And I'm like, I don't know what a Mabuhai is. Does that mean right or left? It's scary to be lost because you don't know where you are or where you're going or how you're going to get out of that. And it's that kind of language that the Bible uses to describe our spiritual condition before we're saved, before we're born again, before we know God. It employs the strongest possible language. Jesus calls people who do not belong to him lost. The scriptures go further and tell us that spiritually it's the same as being dead. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. In the lusts of your flesh, indulging in the desires of flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You guys understand what children of wrath means? The children of Austin are sitting over there coloring, one is asleep. They're the children of Austin. They belong to me and my better half. Uh, the children of Barack Obama are those two girls, Malika, and they don't remember the other one's name. Malika gets all the credit. Malika? I don't know if I even got that right. Nope, somebody's waving me off on that. He has two lovely daughters. They're the children of Barack Obama. The children of George Washington were the children of George Washington. They belonged to him. They came from him. They would always be known as the children of George Washington. The children of wrath belong to the righteous anger of God. And that's where they are from and that's where they abide unless something radical happens. He says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, dead in our transgressions, separated from Christ. Ephesians 2.12, having no hope and without God in the world. When Paul's writing to the Romans, he quotes from Psalm 14 and says, there is not one righteous, not even one. There is none who understand. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Friend, do you understand that you are not a good kid? Maybe you grew up hearing that all the time. You're such a good kid. We're just so grateful we have a good kid. Your parents are not thinking theologically when they say that. Just because you ate all your goldfish crackers and because you didn't spit out your peanut butter and cuss your parents out when you were six does not mean that you are a good kid. Biblical anthropology, a right view of man given by the one who made men who experienced the effects of the fall personally as mankind in mass rebelled against God and all their progeny, all their offspring automatically became children destined for wrath. God says that you're not a good kid. You're not a sweet kid. You are not okay. You are lost and you are dead in your sins and transgressions. It's how you were born in this world. It doesn't matter if your dad is Billy Graham, you are not automatically a Christian. You're a bad kid. I'm a bad man. But the good news is 
that that's the only kind of people that God saves. Friends, God saves bad people, and that's the gospel. God saves bad people. Righteous people, Jesus said, don't need a physician. People who think they've got everything figured out, they have no place for Jesus in their life, and they will remain forever, and on judgment day, children of wrath, their inheritance will be the righteous anger of God in hell. But for those of you who recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, that we have nothing to bring to God, that we only bring the sin that makes salvation necessary, this makes us prime candidates for the mercy of God. God in Christ. Recognize your badness and your lostness. Don't revel in it. Don't deepen yourself in it, but confess it to God knowing that he saves bad people. Chuck Spurgeon, I quoted him this morning, favorite bearded Christian dead guy, says it this way. The absolute necessity of the new birth is also a certainty. We should never poison people with the notion that a moral change or a moral reformation will suffice. But we will over and over again say to them, you must be born again. No, we dare not flatter our hearers, but we must continue to tell them that they were born sinners and must be born saints, or they will never see the face of God with acceptance. It's necessary because the condition of man requires it, the omniscience of Jesus proves it, and because the reality of God's kingdom demands it. Look at verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, I love that, Jesus answered what? What question did Nicodemus ask? There is no question, just more of the omniscience of Jesus answering questions that were never asked. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Maybe the implied question is, Jesus, who are you? What are you doing? What what are all these miracles? What's your message from God? Who are you? And Jesus says, amen, amen. As Patrick reminded us earlier, it's a way of underlining the importance of what he's about to say. And then he tells him, not who he is, but what he needs. If he's going to be in the kingdom of God, then he must be born again. To confirm the importance of what he's about to say, amen, amen, he says you must be born again. This is regeneration. It's characterized by the word anothen in Greek, anothen. It could be translated as again, and that's one of the senses of that word, but, and that's why Nicodemus says, yeah, how could I be born a second time? But there's another sense of that word in, in John's gospel. Actually, in John 8, 23, he uses this word an oath, and Jesus does when he tells the religious leaders, you are from below, I am from anothen. Well, if they're from below, he is from, what's the opposite of below? Above. It's the word anothen. Jesus uses the same word in his conversation with Pontius Pilate. When Pontius looks at him, and before he hands him over to be crucified, is frustrated and says, don't you know that I have the power to condemn you to death? 
And Jesus looks up at Pilate and says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you anothen from above. This tells us something about the need for the new birth. Jesus insists that this new birth, this regeneration, must be a work of God's Spirit who comes from the realm of above. Again, this is not something that you can accomplish on your own or clean up your life and and get yourself born again. The new birth is from above. And Nicodemus, who's such an expert in external religion as the Pharisees were, adding so many laws and observations to what God had required of his people in the Old Testament, is unable to understand who Jesus is because he doesn't have any spiritual life in him. He's spiritually dead. And Jesus says, if you want to talk about who I am, my messianic claims, then we got to talk about the kingdom. You see, Nicodemus would have believed, as all the Jews in his day, that the kingdom was automatically their inheritance. The kingdom was just a a way of talking about heaven, of God's domain. It meant to participate in the Lord's reign at the end of history and to have eternal life. The way we throw around the word heaven is the way they would use the word kingdom. It means to be with God and to be under God's authority and to be with God. And the Jews in Jesus' day had slipped into a man-made religion that said that every one of them, because of their relationship with Father Abraham, will be a part of God's kingdom to come. The kingdom of God was one that was on Nicodemus' mind because the Romans were ruling over the Jews and they longed to experience God's kingdom, to throw off these pagan rulers over them, to be part of this sphere of salvation, this heavenly place where they could be with God and God could rule over them. Yet here is God's son, God's sent one, the savior, the lamb of God before them and they reject him because they think he's not bringing the kingdom the way we want the kingdom to to be. And so when Jesus says something so stunning and so radical to this religious leader as you cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again, that's stunning. That's radical because in Nicodemus's day and in his mind and in his teaching, Jews believed that they were automatically included in the kingdom by right of heritage. Maybe just the worst, the most debauched, the most apostate, vile, criminal might be excluded, but certainly not Nicodemus. And here is Jesus telling Nicodemus that even he, a rabbi and a spiritual elder, could not enter the kingdom unless he's born again. Is there still anybody in this room who thinks they're worthy? Is there still anybody left who thinks that they have what it takes to enter heaven because they're not that bad? Do you understand that your sin separates you from a holy God and that the teaching of Scripture is that you're a sinner by nature and by choice, both by your inheritance as a son and daughter of Adam and by every evil thought and every lustful desire and every prideful moment and every angry stare, and every heartfelt rebellion, and every desire to get out from under the authority that God's placed in your life, 
every single act of disobedience, whether spoken or acted or thought, proves that you can have no part in God's kingdom because your sin has made you unclean. God can't look upon sinful people and welcome them into his presence. Not just because they're dirty or yucky. It's because they offend him and he's perfectly holy. You see, when you were a kid and you fought your little brother or your little sister and you said mean and hateful things to them, that was not just childishness, that was sin. That was the seed of the same sin that will manifest it in your life if you're not born again when you decide that your family isn't going to be your family anymore and you're going to walk away from them like some of your dads did to your family. You're going to decide that those vows you took when you got married, well, you know, circumstances change and therefore this needs to change too. You're going to decide that, you know, the priorities you had when you were young, when you went to that camp, when you made a decision, when you felt all kinds of warm feelings about God, well, those mattered then, but what matters to me now is success and fame and getting what I want. It's those same seeds that you've seen in your life since you were just a child that manifest themselves now in much stronger sinful desires and urges and anger and hatred and malice. And worst of all is that you haven't worshipped Jesus like you ought to. Because the greatest sin in this world is not that you had an abortion. The greatest sin in this world is not that you murdered someone either in real life or in your heart. You see, the greatest evil perpetuated by the human race is that we do not honor God as he deserves because this world is his and it's about him and his glory and his power and his authority and every day that you have not given him worship and homage and praise is a reminder that you are not welcome to participate in his kingdom because you do not qualify for his kingdom because you are a traitor. You are a thief. You are against him and against his kingdom and you are running hard away from him as a sinner by nature and by choice and God, though he is so offended by you and God, though his righteous anger boils up towards you, God created you in his image and likeness and God loves you and he sees that his glory can be reflected in you and that he has the power to change you and rescue you and resurrect you and take you out of your sinful death and lostness and make you new and suit you for heaven so that he sent his own son to die in your place because that wrath had to land on someone and it was due on your head, but instead he struck his perfect son. And it is in that divine substitution of Jesus for sinners that we can see the face of God with favor. And though we have complete and total inability to save ourselves, and though we cannot comprehend 
this divine change in our own strength, we see that the new birth is absolutely necessary. I want to shut it down. I want to leave it right there. And if you're not born again, I want you to think on this. Especially if you think you don't need to be born again. I'm just concerned that there's too many young people in this room who wrongly think that they're saved because of their spiritual heritage, because they go to a good church, because they got all their doctrinal points figured out. I got a MacArthur study Bible. They're better than bad kids at their school. I'm just deeply concerned that you would take tonight in your small group And more importantly, just on your own before the Lord who made the stars in the sky and who holds your destiny in his hands and who sent his son to die in your place, who has the power of life and death and who is the righteous judge of this earth and that you do business before God tonight that you'd think deeply about who you are and who he is and what he demands of you. And then we'll come back tomorrow night having looked at the necessity of the new birth. And I want to talk to you about the nature of the new birth. And I pray that God will work in you as you turn from your sin and cry out to him. Father, thank you for these young people and just the tremendous amount of attention they're paying to your word. I know that some of them are are tired, but I also know that some of them are tired of their sin, and they're tired of playing games, and they're tired of being hypocrites. So God, would you expose their sin to their own hearts and eyes and minds so that they would uncover who they really are before you. You already know it. And that you could wash them clean and cause them to be born anew. We don't want to be fake followers. We want to hear the words of Jesus and see his face with favor. We never want to hear those words, depart from me. I never knew you because it's not signs and miracles that will bring true conversion. It's not someone coming back from the dead to warn us. That's already happened. It's believing your word about who we are as sinners and who Christ is as Savior. Convict us of our sin and draw us close to you, O God. Show us Jesus is the only way to be saved in his matchless name.